going to be in chapter 4, taking a big chunk of chapter 4 out this morning. By far our biggest section of verses so far. So just a quick recap uh, as to where we've been thus far in the Gospel of John. So our subtitle of our series is, Who is Jesus? And so in some weeks we've been more explicit, other weeks more implicit about who Jesus is. But, but this picture that we've gotten of him is he is the God-man. He is the God-man contains both divine and human aspects. And, and so we see his godness in, in the power and the authority that he exhibits. He calls people to himself and they follow. They just drop what's going on and they follow him. So we see his divinity and we also see his humanity. He has physical needs. Today we're going to read and we're going to see how he's weary. He experiences the things that we experience. He walks through struggle and pain. He eats food like we do. He serves people, and he needs to be served. And so um, we, we get this picture of him as both God-man, but, but one of the first ways that John the Baptist kind of introduced Jesus was this fact. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so that's one of the, the big foci that we're going to focus on this morning, that we're going to glean out of this text, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who heals that which is broken, who restores that which is separated or fractured. So John 4 is where we're going to be. We're going to read uh, 30 verses this morning. So follow along in your screen or your Bible or the screen behind me if you want to do that. You're going to do great. We can do this, right? 30 verses. We got this. All right. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria, Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. One of my, I was talking with my children last night about what was going on in this story, and one of them made this astute observation. They said, that wasn't a very nice way to ask for a drink, right? Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come up to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to Jesus. All right, so there's a ton going on in this story, but, but here's my simple hope for today, that through this story, that, that you would know Jesus, that somehow deep down inside of you, you would feel his presence. You, you wouldn't just learn things about Jesus, but you would know who he is in the deepest parts of you. So when Casey and I were preparing to have our first child, there's lots that goes on in that process, right? I talked to some of my buddies, and they told me a little bit about what this whole process was going to be like, or at least what it was for them. And Casey and I went to this birthing class, which was pure joy. And, and so I talked with people, and I learned some about this process, what it might be like. But I didn't really know. Like, I knew stuff about it, right? But I didn't really know what was going to go down in that birth room. Not at all. So when your wife starts having those first contractions, like, you start to learn a little bit. Things change. When your wife start screaming and saying, saying words that you didn't know she was even capable of saying and, and telling you things that, that you don't want to hear that in any other situation might end your marriage, right? Like, you begin to learn things about this whole process that you didn't know before. When you spend a couple nights at the hospital and you hardly sleep at all, you learn a little bit more. And in our case, when we came home that first night, we remember driving home and we just kind of looked at each other uh, in this dreamy sense, like they're letting us take this baby home with us. Like this is amazing. 
we get to take this baby home. We went home, and we're getting settled, and, you know, we're just exhausted. Well, she's exhausted, and, and I'm, I have no reason to be exhausted, but, but I am. And uh, we're starting to get settled, and I'm like, I don't feel right. And it ends up I got food poisoning, and the next five nights I was just totally trashed. I had, I had nothing to give. And so in the middle of the first night, Casey calls her mom, bless her heart, and she comes, and she serves us for a number of days to help, us, to, help to get us through that whole process. But here's the reality. I thought I knew something about that process, but once I got into that process, things got real, and they got real fast for me. So it's one thing to know about, but it's a whole different story to experience something and to actually know, to really know what is going to happen, to know it in a deep and personal sense. And the Bible is so much more than just facts. Like, we could read this and we could say, oh, Jesus is like this and he did that. And, and we could intellectualize this whole thing and learn lots of knowledge about who Jesus is. But my, part of my hope in this series is that we don't stop there because knowledge isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. But if we stop there, it's ineffective. It's not doing what it's intended to do. So part of my hope is that the knowledge that we are gaining, that we're learning, the facts that we learn about Jesus would move us. They would shape us. They would grip us in a profound way so that we would be changed. We would be transformed, much like we see the woman in this story. She is emblematic of us. So this story revolves around a woman and her interaction with Jesus. And, and I mentioned this in a previous week, but notice how Jesus is talking to this woman. Like, if you're coming to establish a kingdom, to be a revolutionary, why is he spending time with this woman? It makes absolutely no sense, right? Completely inefficient. She's like the dregs of society. But what we get here, especially if we think from a couple weeks back, we're getting a picture here of this broad perspective or spectrum that, that Jesus is saying, everybody needs to be saved by me. From Nicodemus, who's at the top of society, to this woman who's at the bottom of society, every single person needs me. We need Jesus. And it doesn't matter where we're at on that spectrum, because we're all somewhere in between. But we all need to encounter Jesus in a deep way. Okay, so first of all, from these verses, let's, I want to look a little bit at the geographical location of this encounter. So verse 4 says, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So there's deep hatred between Jews and Samaritans. So Israel, back in the day, so if you go back about 930 B.C., Israel splits into two nations. So Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And when this happens, King Omri, who was the king of Israel, he decided that he was going to build a capital city in the northern country of Israel, and it, he named it Samaria. So this is where this whole idea of Samaria came from. But then we move 200 years or so later, and it's 722 B.C., Okay, so the Assyrians come in and they're going to conquer Samaria. They're going to 
overrun Israel, but they're gonna, their focus is going to be on Samaria. And once they conquer Samaria, what they're going to do is they're going to find all the people of significance, and they're going to deport them out of Samaria to move them into a land that, where they think they can take more advantage of who these people are and the means that they have. And then what they're going to do is they're going to move some of their people into Samaria so that they'll intermarry with the remaining Jews. So Samaria, as you move along in years, was perceived by Jewish people to be filled with a bunch of half-breeds. People who were not pure. People who didn't really follow the Jewish religion because they had intermarried with foreigners. They were unclean people. But time goes on, and, and we get to about 400 B.C. And Samaria, because they're, they're becoming cut off, well, they are cut off from the rest of the nation. They're like, we want to have our own temp temple. And so they go and they build their own temple on a mountain so that they have a place to worship. They can worship their God as well. And tensions continue to rise between Jews and Samaritans. And about 300 years after they construct their temple, the Jews come in and they just raise it. They just destroy it. And so here we see this picture of hundreds and hundreds of years, tensions raising, boiling. Hatred is so deep between Jewish people and Samaritans. Which is why the woman would ask Jesus, how is it that you ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan? It blows her mind. This is not how the world works for them. It is not right in any sense. And so ardent Jews would look at Jesus and they would argue he can't be the Messiah because of the way that he lives. He associates with the wrong people. He's dealing with unclean people. He's doing things that he shouldn't be doing. He is a false teacher, essentially. And, and this doesn't just stop with his talking with a Samaritan. It's also the fact that he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Because in this culture, not only should a Jew not associate with a Samaritan, but a male should not, should not talk with a female in public. E even if it's the man's wife, they're not supposed to talk with each other. So in talking with my kids last night, one of them asked the question, so how do they get married? Like, if they're not supposed to talk in public, how do they say words that they can become married? Which I thought was a great question, and I didn't have an answer for it at the time. So, but it was an insightful question. But, but one thing we should note here, and be really clear on, Jesus is not invoking a new political agenda to say, to overthrow how things are going in terms of male female, or, or just trying to construct a political paradigm to say this is what we need to be doing to fix what's wrong. He is establishing a kingdom, and his kingdom will affect political structures, no doubt. And he's modeling things by talking to a woman. In talking to her, he's saying this woman has value, as much value as I do as a male. So it touches that reality, but he's not coming to, to create this upheaval politically. That's not what he's doing. He's coming to 
to create his own kingdom, to do his own thing. But part of the reason I say that is because people will look at Jesus and say, well, he's a political revolutionary, and, and he's not. He's not that primarily. What he does will revolutionize aspects of politics and, and aspects of every single part of life. But he is not primarily a political revolutionary. And, and we might ask, well, why would Jesus do this? Why would he go into Samaria? Why would he talk to this woman? Because isn't he going to just mislead his disciples? Does, does he really want them to do this? Isn't he just going to create chaos by doing this? But he knows what he's doing. Remember, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which includes Samaritans, which includes females. And so Jesus, as it says in verse 4, he had to. He had to journey through Samaria because he had a divine appointment with this woman. And we already mentioned the scandal of Jesus talking with this woman, but her story makes this conversation increasingly scandalous, the fact that he would be interacting with her. And it doesn't take long for Jesus to, to get to the heart of her story. There's this quick exchange between Jesus and this woman where Jesus asks her for a drink, and she's thrown off by this, and so she asks her question in verse 9, how can you do this? And then Jesus responds with a legitimate if you knew who I was, which we get this in our culture, right? Let's, celebrities will be like, if they get pulled over by a cop, they might be like, if you knew who I was, and they'll give that, right? But it, for Jesus, it's legitimate. He can say that at any point in a game, right? He, he can say, if you knew who I was. So he gives this to the lady, and she replies, give me this living water that you're offering. I want that. I need that. And then things get interesting and very uncomfortable in this conversation. So Jesus implies to her that he's going to give her this living water. But first, he says, go call your husband and come here. And at this point in the game, this woman is probably kicking herself. Why did I even ask for that living water? The one part of my life I don't want anybody to ask about, to touch in any way. And he went there. He said, go bring your husband. Now, there's a really interesting sentence in verse 6. And maybe you noticed this when we read through it. But it states in verse 6 that it was about the sixth hour. So this is all happening at about the sixth hour. Which is really interesting. Because the sixth hour would be about noon. Okay? Noon is about the hottest part of the day. So it's weird that she's at the well at the hottest part of the day. Because even today, in cultures where they still have this practice, where people or women would go to the, the public well and gather water, this is done early in the morning, before it gets hot. Another thing that's odd here is that she's by herself. The normal practice in these kinds of societies is that women or people would go together. This is a communal event that happens daily. And so it's odd that she's going at the hottest time of the day. And it's odd that she's doing this all by herself. 
But there's a reason why she's doing this. This woman comes to the well at this time because no one else is there. She knows that she's an outcast. She feels in every bone of her body that she is excluded. She is ashamed because of the life that she has lived. And so she avoids other women. She's had five husbands, and she's working on a sixth. You can imagine in, in a smaller community how this woman was the talk of the town. How people would love to talk about this woman, whether it's in front of her face or behind her back. We don't know why she had five husbands, but we can assume it's shady, right? It's likely shady. It's, it's not mentioned here to reflect well upon her in any way. And so what this woman does, the way she spends her life her energy is hiding. She's hiding from people in her town. She's hiding things inside of herself. And so her life is not really life at all. Her life is actually a slow death, which is why when Jesus offers her living water, she jumps at that. She wants that. Give me this living water, she says. Because she knows she'll never have to come to this well again. She's thinking physically. Jesus is speaking spiritually. So again, we see another disconnect here between the physical, spiritual, right? But, but because she's thinking physically, she's thinking, if I don't ever have to come to the well again, I don't ever have to face these people in this context. This alleviates a lot of problems for me. So she says, give me this living water. In her eyes, hiding is so much easier than having to face the pain that all these people will create for her when she sees them face to face. And so we have to see what Jesus is doing here. Why he calls her to go get her husband and to bring him. He's touching the part of this woman's life that wearies her. The part of her life that is the most tender. He is going after that part of her life that has caused her the most pain, and that area of her heart that only Jesus can heal. And, and if we were to sit around strategizing, thinking about this woman, all right, we, we want to build a relationship with this woman. We want to connect with this woman, many of us might say, in building a relationship with her, what's the one area we don't touch? We don't mention this area because it's just going to cause her to run, right? We, we won't ask her about her husband or her marriages or all that's gone on with it. We would just avoid that, most likely. But Jesus goes right there. He makes a beeline for it. And so, as he does this, he's trying to get somewhere where no one else can get. A place that this woman would not voluntarily go on her own. She has run after fulfillment her whole life. She has sought affirmation and love and satisfaction. But it's eluded her time 
and time again. She's tried many forms. Maybe the first husband, he was physically appealing. Maybe the next one was the intellectual. The next one was the jokester. Who knows? But he's try- she's tried many different forms, and every single one has failed. And here she is, weary, thirsty, hiding, desperate, longing, and hopeless. She's coming to a well, and the picture of her life is that she is thirsty, and she doesn't know where to go to quench that thirst. And her tendency to hide, to hide her pain, to hide herself, is so obvious in these verses. It's second nature to her. So Jesus says to her, go get your husband. And she replies, I have no husband. She doesn't deal with all the details behind that statement, right? She just says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you have, you've had five husbands, and your current man is not your husband. And she says very astutely, I perceive that you are a prophet. And she tries to redirect the conversation by playing off this whole idea, I perceive that you're a prophet. And she goes on to restate the centuries-old dispute regarding how true worship occurs. This is what Jews say. This is what Samaritans say. And what she's saying here, not in her words, but what she's saying is, this is uncomfortable for me. Don't go there. Don't touch that part of me. And she's trying to redirect so that Jesus might take a different approach or he might get focused on something else. Jesus says, worship doesn't depend on location. True worship is a matter of spirit and a truth. And truth. And, and the woman says, ah, the Messiah will come. He'll resolve all this. You think this, I think this. He'll come and he'll work all of this out. And Jesus says, I am he. I am him. So all this stuff this woman isn't, a, uh, isn't sure about, all these things that she's waiting for the Messiah to come and reveal, here he is, and he's speaking things about her heart. And it gets very personal here for her. She knows she can't run. She knows that she can't hide. And Jesus is not going to let her escape. He's displaying a pursuing love that she has longed for her whole life. And we need to understand, she's you and I. This woman is me. We need to read ourselves into the story at this point. We all have these cringeworthy parts of ourselves that we will do everything, absolutely everything possible to hide, to hide from other people, to hide from Jesus. But the reality is we can't hide them from Jesus. And in our attempts to hide our pain, our struggle, our sin, whatever it might be, we actually alienate ourselves. We actually push God away. And hiding never helps. It never helps. In our culture nowadays, there's kind of been this buzzword of transparency, right? And it's a cool thing. It's a good thing to be transparent. And and I affirm that. It's great to be transparent. We need to be authentic people in order to be true followers of Jesus. 
But there's a difference between transparency and vulnerability, right? Transparency, we can reveal what we want. It gives us also the ability when someone hacks us off to, to tell them what we really think. I'll tell you what I think, but to go to vulnerability, we've got to reveal those painful parts, those parts of us that we would never want to reveal. And so Jesus isn't just asking for transparency. He said, you've got to get vulnerable. This is what the gospel does to us. It gets into the deepest parts of us, and it uproots the ugliest parts in our hearts so that we can be healed, so that he can restore us. And it's at this point in the conversation where Jesus' followers come back. And it says in verse 27 that they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one asked. And, and this just tells us how awkward this conversation was, right? Like they didn't even know how to insert themselves into this conversation. They know that this is messed up, that he's talking to this woman. But because it's so uncomfortable and awkward, they don't even want to ask the questions. Which it's interesting to see them in this scenario and to think about Jesus, how he so naturally can move in and out of these conversations. He does push the woman to a point where she feels discomfort. But he's completely comfortable engaging people, which points also to his divinity, how he is over all of this. Okay, and then verses 28 and 29. They read, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So there's two things I want to highlight in these two verses. The first thing, it says at the beginning of verse 28, that the woman left her water jar. Jesus never got what he was looking for, right? He came to the well to get a drink, to quench his thirst. And he asked this woman, give me a drink. And he never got it. But the woman, she is now drinking deep of living water, right? This is the gospel. We give nothing to Jesus. We come to him empty broken, possessing nothing. And he gives us everything. He quenches our thirst. He satisfies us in ways that we would never even imagine, beyond our imagination. This woman has spent her life defying God, chasing satisfaction in any way she can think of, primarily through husbands, but trying to be fulfilled perpetually disillusioned. And we could look at this and we, we would not be surprised, especially if we think humanly, for Jesus to just be exasperated with her. To mock her in some way. Why did you do this? Didn't you learn after the first, second, third? You keep running down this road. What's wrong with you, woman? But he doesn't. Not at all. He patiently, lovingly gives her 
exactly what she has been longing for her whole life. He satisfies her in the very way she has sought satisfaction all the days that she has lived. And he shows in this, he is a good God who gives good gifts. She brought him nothing. He gave her everything. And this is our story too. We bring Jesus nothing and he gives us everything. And then what this creates, so this is the second thing in verses 28 and 29, what this then creates in the woman. This woman is emboldened. She runs out to other people and she tells them about Jesus. The beauty of the gospel overpowers the ugliness of our sin. And we see this in her by her going and telling. Her sin no longer caused her to hesitate. Her sin no longer caused her to hide. The beauty and the power of the gospel had overwhelmed that in her heart. And she went and she told others. So this is a woman who spent her whole life hiding. And now she's acting in a way that's completely nonsensical. It's completely out of character for her. She's hid her whole life, and now she's running to those people that she has sought to hide from. And you can bet that there's people who are going to deride her, who are going to mock her at some level, right? She comes to these people, and she talks about Jesus being the man who told her all that she ever did. And probably there's people who say, yeah, we got five more of them. Five more men who can tell us all that you ever did in a mocking way, right? But she runs to these people that she has spent her life running away from, and she tells them about Jesus because he has touched her. And when Jesus touches and heals the parts of our hearts and our lives that we're most ashamed of, we no longer need to hide. We realize there's nothing to fear. And the shackles of fear and shame are broken, freeing us to live courageously. And so, this phrase that the, the woman says, all that I ever did, this is true for all of us. That phrase can, can mean a couple different things. Her whole life, that phrase would identify for her shame. All the things that I have done cause me to feel ashamed. And yet, she runs now to these people saying all the things I ever did with boldness. And this is what Jesus does. He takes the broken things and he restores them. He takes the sick things and he heals them. The deepest wounds of our life, he heals them so that we are no longer ashamed, but we actually look at those th things and they cause us to marvel at Jesus and say, what a good God you are that you would take that mess and you would create beauty from ashes. And he fills us with boldness in regarding the very things that we used to feel shame. You see, this woman, 
at one point in her life, had heard about Jesus. She knew things about the Messiah. But now, she knows. She has encountered him in a personal, profound way. And it has completely changed her. And she longs now to draw near to this man. Not to run out of fear, not to hide, but to draw near to Jesus because she encountered him in a personal way. So mere facts could not transform her. Mere facts could not transform her. But a personal encounter with Jesus could. And this is true for us as well. We all have these well moments in our own lives where Jesus will confront us. He'll press on those deepest wounds, those parts of us where we feel the most ashamed. And and our propensity in those moments will be to protect, to hide, to run away. So for me, one of those well experiences pertains to basketball. I thought that basketball was full of innocence. And in many ways, it was full of innocence for me. It provided me tons of joy and pleasure. I loved the competition involved in basketball. But what, had, what was happening in me was that basketball was holding such sway in my life that it became more important than God. And so I had this well moment where basketball was taken away from me. And my whole life I had always chased after getting a little bit better. How can I improve? What skill can I do next so that I can broaden my game, become a better basketball player? And then basketball is completely removed from my life. And it revealed what was in my heart. That I was chasing basketball. That I was serving basketball as a god. And what was left there was this huge gaping wound that I could not fix. And I tried to medicate it, but I couldn't do it. And this woman, she cries out to Jesus, where can I get this water? And and this is where this gets so personal for me, because I have been there. And I can even think, not even there, when I was in the midst of having my stroke, I remember I was cognizant cognizant enough to know that I was not fully there, not fully conscious, and I was trying to talk, and I could not even speak words. And so, in that moment, I couldn't even cry out, where do I get this living water? But then in the couple years that followed, because of my pride, I didn't want to cry out, where can I get this living water? I didn't want to run there because I was bitter and angry at God. And I didn't want the living water, even though I needed every part of me knew at some level that's what I needed, that's, that's not where I wanted to run. And eventually, God 
wooed me. And he softened my heart to the point where I would cry out, where can I get this water? And I still cry out today, where can I get this water? Because I run to empty wells. And you guys know this, you do the same thing. We all run to empty wells that cannot satisfy us. But now, but now I have living water. And I want others to have it as well. Because I look around me and I see all kinds of people who are thirsty, longing for this thing that I have, but running to all of these different wells that cannot satisfy them. They can, they can be satisfied and fulfilled temporarily, but not ultimately. So I see people who get angry, and they're angry. And I, I do this as well, but we're angry because we're running after a well that won't ultimately satisfy us. I see ambitious people who want to grow and take the next step, and there's nothing wrong with that until it becomes the God in and of itself. And these ambitious people will run on a treadmill over and over, not getting anywhere and not, not really getting satisfied in the way that they want to. They'll end up disillusioned and ultimately ashamed. And I have to realize that was me and that could be me. And all of us need to understand that. That could be us. And so for all of us, we have to wrestle with this reality, this question that Jesus is getting to with this woman. What, what are you hiding? What are you ashamed of? What resides in the deepest part of you that is this wound that you don't want Jesus or anybody to know about or to touch in any way? What is the thing that you can't get enough of that continually leaves you thirsty? And the answer for all of us to that problem is not knowing about Jesus, but knowing Jesus. He is the one who quenches our thirst, who will ultimately satisfy us we have to see that in these verses, he's not merely tolerating this woman. He loves this woman. It's not just toleration. He wants to heal her. And he wants to heal us as well. Your sin, my sin, your pain, my struggle, none of it is more powerful than Jesus' cross. None of it. We might think so. We might believe that, but it is not. We're believing a lie. Our sin pales, melts, dies in the face of the cross. We need to believe this. We need to believe that the gospel is powerful, more powerful than your sin, more powerful than your shortcomings, so that we might be healed. Because that's Jesus' desire for us, that where we are wounded, we would be healed. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our healer.
you see our wounds, most of them self-inflicted. Most of them wounds that also wound you, that are against you. And yet, you come to us and you offer healing through forgiveness. And so God, I pray that in these moments, in the moments that follow, as we sing songs, as we go from here today, as we eat food and we gather with family and we go to our jobs this week, that we would not just know facts about you, but by your Spirit, we would know you. We would feel your presence, that you would rest heavy upon us, and you would grab hold of our hearts, and we would be captured by you. We would be in awe of who you are and what you have done. And that would show itself in profound ways in our hearts. So Jesus, come and be our healer. Come to the sick and the broken and the wounded and mend us, restore us, and heal us for the glory of your name and for the joy of our hearts. Amen. If you guys want to observe the Lord's Supper while we sing these songs, I want to invite you guys to that. You guys want to stand and we'll sing together. Thank you.